This is Shakespeare and Bard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. Today, one of the most influential romantic comedies ever written, it's time for Much Ado About Nothing. I learn in this letter that Don Pedro of Aragon comes this night to Messina. How many hath he killed and eaten in these wars? But how many hath he killed, for indeed I promise to eat all of his killing? I would to God some scholar would conjure her, for certainly while she is here a man may live as quiet in hell as in a sanctuary. We have caught her, madam. If it proves so, then loving goes by haps. Some Cupid kills with arrows, some with traps. (laughs) (laughs) When I said I would die a bachelor, I did not think I should live till I were married. Prince, thou art sad. Get thee a wife. Get thee a wife. So as always, we're going to start with a short summary. How short? This is much ado about nothing in one minute. Let's start the timer. Go. All is not so rotten in the state of Messina. The soldiers are coming home. Among them are young Claudio, the cynical Benedict, and Don Pedro, the prince. Their arrival is greeted by Leonardo, the governor, his daughter Hero, and his niece Beatrice. Claudio loves Hero and plots to marry her at the mass celebration happening that night, a plot which is overheard by Don John, the bastard brother to the prince. Don John plots to ruin Claudio's happiness. Meanwhile, a merry war is going on between Benedict and Beatrice, who love to hate each other and hate to love anyone at all. Leonardo, the prince, and Claudio conscript everyone to trick Beatrice and Benedict into thinking that each is in love with the other. The game works, and soon Beatrice and Benedict are pining for love. Claudio woos Hero. Their wedding is planned, but on the night before, Don John and his confederates trick Claudio into thinking Hero is cheating on him. At the wedding, Claudio humiliates her and calls the marriage off. Don John disappears, his confederates are caught, the ruse is exposed, and Claudio and Hero are happily wed. As for Beatrice and Benedict, they find themselves loving to love, and loving to love each other more than anyone in the world. In the 19th century, Thomas Boulder released The Family Shakespeare, a collection of edited versions of Shakespeare's plays. Boulder is the source of the word boulderize, which means to take out all the good parts. I'm not sure exactly how much Boulder took out of Much Ado About Nothing, but I wouldn't be surprised if he left most of it intact. Aside from the frequent use of the word God, one of Thomas Boulder's bugaboos, the play's plot is a house built on a foundation of conventional morals. The ultimate message is that marriage is the best thing that ever could happen. Thou looks sad, Benedict tells the prince at the end of the play. Get thee a wife. The villain of the play is a bastard, the product of an adulterous union. Like Edmund in King Lear, Don John is a piece of bad fruit that sprang from a poison tree. Don John could have come up with any ruse to separate Claudio and Hero, say having Claudio arrested for a crime, yet he naturally concocts a plan that revolves around illicit sex. Hero's unfaithfulness is only half as important to Claudio, who seems equally offended by the notion that she is no longer pure. There, Leonardo. Take her back again. Give not this rotten orange to your friend. She's but the sign and semblance of her honour. Behold, how like a maid she blushes here. Oh, what authority and show of truth can cunning sin cover itself withal? Comes not that blood as modest evidence to witness simple virtue? Would you not swear all you that see her, that she were a maid by these exterior shows? But she is none. She knows the heat of a luxurious bed. Her blush is guiltiness, not modesty. In short, the underlying message of Much Ado About Nothing is that premarital sex is bad, adultery produces bad children, and marriage is the solution to all of life's ills. 
This sort of morality is widely appealing and requires few dramatic gymnastics. The heroes of Taming of the Shrew to Gentlemen of Verona and A Midsummer Night's Dream don't always fit nicely into our modern perceptions about how men and women should behave towards each other, but the characters of Much Ado About Nothing have withstood the test of time. In 2012, director Joss Whedon produced a film adaptation of the play set in modern times, and what was notable was how easily the story slipped into today's world. Whedon may have edited the text, but he had to do very little to the plot. The characters are as recognizable today as they were in 1598. Much Ado About Nothing is another ensemble comedy, though you wouldn't know it from the popularity of Beatrice and Benedict, who have, in Falstaffian style, overshadowed everyone else. The prototype for every warring would-be lovers who have ever followed, Beatrice and Benedict tower over Much Ado About Nothing. Here on Claudio's rocky road to a storybook marriage is meant to be the focus of our attention, but just as Falstaff stole Hal's thunder, so too do Beatrice and Benedict steal the spotlight from everyone else. Henry IV Part I succeeds despite Falstaff's attempts to wrestle the play away from everyone, but the same cannot be said here. This is both the strength of Much Ado and its eternal weakness. The subplot is more interesting than the plot itself. There are scenes that don't involve either Beatrice or Benedict, but really, who can remember them, and why would you bother? These days, it is par for the narrative course for writers to have two people go from detesting each other to falling in love. In Shakespeare's day, the idea was still fairly new. Now, the conflict in most of Shakespeare's comedies stem from circumstance, or from farce. Viola loved the Duke, but she's currently disguised as a man, etc., etc. Now, Shakespeare attempted to create a love out of hate in The Taming of the Shrew and A Midsummer Night's Dream, both with mixed results. Neither Helena or Katrina deserve their fates in those plays, but Beatrice has her perfect match in Senior Benedict. I wonder that you will still be talking, Signor Benedict. Nobody marks you. What, my dear lady Disdain, are you yet living? Is it possible Disdain should die while she hath such meat food to feed it as Signor Benedict? Courtesy itself must convert to Disdain if you come in her presence. Then is courtesy a turncoat? But it is certain I am loved of all ladies, only you accepted. And I would I could find in my heart that I had not a hard heart, for truly I love none. A dear happiness to women. They would else have been troubled with a pernicious suitor. I thank God in my cold blood I am of your humour for that. I had rather hear my dog bark at a crow than a man swear he loves me. Oh, God keep your ladyship still in that mind, so some gentleman or other shall scape a predestinate scratched face. Scratching could not make it worse than to such a face as yours well, were. you are a rare parrot teacher. A bird of my tongue is better than a beast of yours. I would my horse had the speed of your tongue and so good a continuer. But keep you aware, God's name, I've done. You always end with a jade's trick. I know you of old. Beatrice and Benedict were made for each other. They come across as two sides of the same coin. Almost all of Shakespeare's other lovers fall in love, or rather lust, at first sight, even as you like it's Rosalind, who is Shakespeare's greatest feminine creation, cannot escape this fate, though she is wise enough to proceed with caution. Perhaps Beatrice and Benedict did fall in love the first time they saw each other, but that's left to conjecture to decide. When we meet them, they are ex-lovers, and the nature of their affair is vague, leaving it up to us, or rather the actors playing them, to decide how far their courtship progressed. Come, lady, come. You have lost the heart of Signor Benedict. Indeed, my lord, he lent it me a while, and I gave him use for it, a double heart for his single one. Marry, once before, he won it of me with false dice, therefore your grace may well say I have lost it. Perhaps Beatrice loved him, and Benedict wouldn't give her the time of day. Or perhaps they courted for a while, and then it all fell apart. 
Shakespeare was wise not to tell us, though given the speed in which they fall in love with each other in this play, I'm tempted to think that they were former lovers who broke up after one of them said something that was too clever for their own good. In any case, by the time we catch up with them, they are sworn enemies who delight in tormenting one another, the Elizabethan equivalent of a divorced couple who have to continue meeting because of the kids. The situation is replete with both comedy and tension. The comedy comes from the wit, and the tension from the very real emotion that swells beneath it. The formula is a perfect one, which is why it has been repeated countless times in books, movies, and plays. Anytime you see a story in which the hero is forced to spend time with some former flame, you're on a path blazed by Beatrice and Benedict over 400 years ago. Most of Shakespeare's lovers are young, and their passion stems from a young person's belief in the mythology of love. Romeo, Lysander, Barone, and even those two gentlemen of Verona all believe that love is an eternal, life-altering thing. This is certainly what Claudio believes. No sooner does he see Hero than he decides to marry her. Benedict, didst thou note the daughter of Signor Leonardo? I noted her not, but I looked on her. Is she not a modest young lady? Do you question me as an honest man should do for my simple, true judgment, or would you have me speak after my custom as being a professed tyrant to their sex? No. I pray thee, speak in sober judgment. Why, faith, methinks she's too low for a high praise, too brown for a fair praise, and too little for a great praise. Only this commendation I can afford her, that were she other than she is, she were unhandsome, and being no other but as she is, I do not like her. Oh, thou thinkest I'm in sport. I pray thee, tell me truly how thou likest her. Would you buy her that you inquire after her? Can the world buy such a jewel? Benedict tries to dissuade him because he, like Beatrice, is an older and wiser thing. Beatrice accuses Benedict of always ending their verbal battles with a jade's trick. There's a double meaning in this, for Benedict is a jaded cynic who no longer believes that the power of love is a curious thing. Beatrice is much the same. <laughs> By my troth, niece, thou wilt never get thee a husband if thou be so shrewd of thy tongue. In faith, she's too cursed. Too cursed is more than cursed. I shall lessen God's sending that way, for it is said, God sends a cursed cow short horns, but to a cow too cursed he sends none. So by being too cursed, God will send you no horns. Just if he sent me no husband, for the which blessing I am at him upon my knees every morning and evening. <laughs> Lord, I could not endure a husband with a beard on his face. I had rather lie in the woman. You may light on a husband that hath no beard. And what should I do with him? Dress him in my apparel and make him my waiting gentleman. <laughs> he that hath a beard is more than a youth, and he that hath no beard is less than a man. And he that is more than a youth is not for me. And he that is less than a man, I am not for him. Both of them have given up on love, and yet the moment they are fooled into believing that each loves the other, they become exactly like the young lovers they so heartedly disdained. Benedict's decision to love Beatrice is but the work of a moment. Love me? Why, it must be requited. I hear how I am censured. They say I will bear myself proudly if I perceive the love come from her. They say, too, that she will rather die than give any sign of affection. I must not seem proud. Happy are they that hear their detractions and can put them to mending. They say the lady is fair. Tis a truth I can bear them witness. And virtuous. Tis so I cannot reprove it. And wise. But for loving me. Beatrice is no different. What fire is in mine ears? Can this be true? Stand I condemned for pride and scorn so much? Contempt farewell and maiden pride adieu. No glory lives behind the back of such. And Benedict. Love on, I will requite taming my wild heart to thy loving hand.
In 2013, James Earl Jones and Vanessa Redgrave, two actors in their twilight years, played Beatrice and Benedict in the West End. This is sublime casting, for it highlights the idea that Beatrice and Benedict are the polar opposites of the young lovers. The great joy of the play comes from watching Beatrice and Benedict shed their life of cynicism and conceit. Their transformation invites us to do the same. The young lovers of Shakespeare's canon all believe in the transformative powers of love, and their beliefs are almost always borne out. But Beatrice and Benedict do not believe in love when their story begins, and so in falling in love with one another, or returning to love as the case may be, they have one of the most satisfying character arcs of all of Shakespeare's plays. Can we blame Barry Oltz for doing away with all the other plots in his operatic adaptation? The rest of the play, sadly, is hardly the equal of Beatrice and Benedict. Don John is a sad excuse for a villain, so much that he vanishes halfway through the play. Shakespeare forgets about him so completely that Don John almost gets away scot-free. It's only in the very last moment of the play that we are told Don John was caught trying to escape Messina. John's henchmen are no better, which is all the more disappointing given the foolishness of the clownish characters who end up catching him. If Don John, Conrad, and Baraccio were more sinister villains, there would be some pleasure in watching them be undone by a confederacy of dunces, or more important, there would be more dramatic tension when they encounter the fools in the dead of night. But Shakespeare has no time to dwell on the scene, and the clowns catch the villains with disappointing ease. We charge you in the prince's name, stay! Call up the right master constable! We have here recovered the most dangerous piece of lechery that ever was known in the Commonwealth! And one deformed is one of them. I know him, always a lock. Masters, masters! You'll be made bring deformed forth, I warrant you! Masters! That never speak, we charge you! Let us obey you to go with us. We are like the proof of goodly commodity being taken up of these men's bills. A commodity in question, I warrant you. Come, we'll obey you. The rest of the ensemble have all the functionality of cogs in a machine. They fill their roles without ever really transcending them. If we cared more about Claudio and Hero, we might be more bereft when people plotted against their happiness. Notably, their story revolves around the same plot point we saw in The Merry Wives of Windsor. Both plays feature a woman who is perceived to be unfaithful and a man who doesn't really appreciate being a cuckold. Shakespeare wouldn't write Othello for another five years, but he was clearly interested in its themes. Infidelity and sexual morality will show up again in Hamlet, Troilus and Cressida, and Measure for Measure, all of which Shakespeare would write in the years between Much Ado and that play about the jealous Moor of Venice. Practice would make him perfect, for by the time Shakespeare got to Othello, he had taken his time to make us care about the more Venice and Desdemona, so that it is wrenching to see them driven apart. For now, he shows no such patience for Hero and Claudio, who are never seen alone or alone together, thus denying us the chance to ever care about them at all. Despite this, the ensemble of Much Ado About Nothing is still a vast improvement over all the comedies that ever came before it. Even the comedy of errors, glorious as it is, moves so fast that it rarely has time to pause for something like character development. Much Ado About Nothing is more leisurely paced, allowing Shakespeare a chance to let minor characters like Leonardo, Margaret, and even the Friar all have their moments to shine. Claudio's public humiliation of Hero is still painful to watch, such that we can hardly blame Beatrice for asking Benedict to kill him in revenge. Much Ado About Nothing has its shortcomings, but they are far more forgivable than those in some of Shakespeare's other plays. The play also stands as another marker in Shakespeare's march towards As You Like It and Twelfth Night, the two plays which would mark the zenith of his comedy writing career. In fact, Much Ado About Nothing marks the beginning of what 
can be considered a literary rally for Shakespeare, who would spend the next seven years writing almost all of his major triumphs. It's between 1598 and 1606 that Shakespeare would give us Julius Caesar, Othello, King Lear, Macbeth, oh, and a little play called Hamlet. Looking at his career from this perspective, Much Ado About Nothing feels like a pretty good warm-up act. You can almost see Shakespeare stretching his legs as he prepares us for all that is to come. And now comes the part of the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. Now, there are numerous versions of Much Ado About Nothing, two of which were made for television. The first came from CBS in 1973, while the other was done by the BBC in 1984. But the most famous adaptation was the 1993 movie directed by Kenneth Branagh and featuring a cast of all-stars. Forget everything you've ever known about adventure, romance, betrayal, and comedy. Which of my bad parts did thou first fall in love with me? For them all together. (laughs) Kenneth Branagh, Academy Award winner Emma Thompson, Academy Award winner Denzel Washington, Keanu Reeves, Robert Sean Leonard, Michael Keaton, and introducing Kate Beckinsale. The Samuel Goldwyn Company presents Much Ado About Nothing. Set against a luscious 19th century backdrop, Branna as Benedict spars with Emma Thompson's Beatrice while Michael Keaton has a great time chewing the scenery as the dull-witted Dogberry. Now, another film adaptation came in 2012 and was directed by Joss Whedon, who modernized the setting and filmed the entire thing in black and white. Oh, God, sir. I cannot endure my lady tongue. There's a kind of merry war betwixt Signor Benedict and her. They never meet, but there's a skirmish of wit between them. If you three will minister assistance, I will bring Signor Benedict and the Lady Beatrice into a mountain of affection. (laughs) All of these are excellent takes on the play, so deciding on which you prefer will depend largely on your tastes. If you prefer your Shakespeare unabridged, then you'll have to go back to the BBC. If you prefer it a little more traditional, then the Branagh version is probably your thing. For me, I would select the 2012 version. I usually abhor the modernization of Shakespeare, but Joss Whedon's adaptation is so easy and logical that I found I didn't mind at all. The script has been heavily adapted, of course, but Whedon adapted it in favor of Beatrice and Benedict, following the same route blazed by Berrioltz, and for that matter, Kenneth Branagh, in 1993. Also, Whedon does the unique thing of opening the film with a wordless scene in which Benedict and Beatrice are seen the morning after they have spent the night together. Whedon doesn't really elaborate on this scene, but it does help us understand both why Beatrice and Benedict have such animosity towards each other and why they are so quick to fall in love. But to be honest, choosing one version over the other is really something of a Sophie's choice. Much Ado About Nothing is such a strong play that almost any adaptation of it is bound to be winning, so long as the actors speak the speech and stand where the directors told them to. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. Well, that's it for Shakespeare on Bard. Next week, we go back to the histories one more time for the grand conclusion of the Henriad, It's Henry V. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare on Bard. For more information about me and this podcast, please visit the show page at www.joelfishbane.net slash Shakespeare on Bard. And hey, while you're there, why not check out the other things I do with my time? 
You can find out more information about my book, The Thunder of Giants, a novel about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world too small to contain them. It's available from St. Martin's Press. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare and Bard. 18 plays down, 20 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it. <laughs>